Welcome to Alaska's Political Pipeline. I'm David Bernkoff. And I'm Rebecca Polsha. And we've been gone for a while, haven't we? <laughs> well, you've been gone. <laughs> I've been gone. I've been reporting, I've been covering politics in Turkey and Albania. Turkey, which has a major election coming up for president. And Albania, which is one of the strangest countries I've ever been to. And I want to tell a little huh. story. Okay, go for it. Not that it has anything to do with Alaska, <laughs> but Albania was ruled by a very paranoid dictator for decades. He was so paranoid that he bankrupted the country building bunkers everywhere. Oh, wow. Like almost a million little igloo-shaped concrete mushroom-like. Just for himself to use? No. He ordered his people to go out into these bunkers about once a month to practice defending the country against imagined invaders. Oh, wow. And he thought that Yugoslavia was going to invade, or Italy, or Soviet Union, or the United States. And the remains of these bunkers are everywhere to be seen. Can they be used for anything now? <laughs> Farmers sometimes use them for storage. Uh-huh. There's a particularly large one in the capital city that I am told is used as a coffee house. Oh, wow. But basically, they're crumbling along roadsides and creeks. That's and fascinating. It's the most interesting thing to be driving along this very pretty roads, countryside, and you just see these little hmm. bunkers everywhere. So there you go. That's my report from I Albania. Like Learn something new today. But let us bring it back to another A, and that is Anchorage, Alaska, <laughs> another two A's. So while we were gone and in the couple of weeks since I've been back, um, there's actually been a little bit of positive news out of the Bronson administration. First, you know, he did lose his um, chief of staff, Adam Tremblay, mm -hmm. and Mr. Tremblay has been replaced by Mario Byrd temporarily. But one of the interesting things was when we did a story on Tremblay's departure, it seems as if pretty much everybody liked working with him. That was noticeable. That does seem to be the consensus. Like everybody felt like he was very grown up and even the sound bites from the assembly in the story from the other from the other day, everyone was very complimentary of him. So he will be a challenge to replace. But moving forward, the administration did nominate Ken Colhase to be the full-time municipal manager. That was not unexpected, but that finally happened last week. And Heltzer was confirmed as municipal attorney. And the mayor's office sent us a statement about other oh, things, didn't they? They did. So this is what he says. Every administration experiences employee turnover at the executive level. Progress is being made at all levels of the municipality to recruit and retain talented employees. The administration has extended offers to candidates for both the House for both the human resources and real estate director positions, the mayor is actively talking to individuals about filling the chief of staff position. For health director role, the mayor has confidence in acting director Kim Rash, but is examining all options to fill those positions permanently. And Kim Rash replaced Joe Gerace. Right. And here's a little update on that situation. As people may recall, uh, the state is seeking a little more than $60,000 from Mr. Gerace, uh for money allegedly. Um, he was overpaid because he claimed a higher rank mm -hmm. in the st some, a state militia, and so he was paid at a higher rate than he should have been. They're seeking that money back, but 
they can't find him yep. and they have been unable to serve him. So what they did was there's a provision in the law that says if you can't find somebody after a certain period of time, if you advertise uh, on the court website for 30 days that you're looking for them, that's enough. That serves as service. And so that period just ended last week. And now Mr. Jerez has 30 days to respond to being served. No one knows if he will, but he has 30 days. And at the end of that 30 days, which is about 25 days from today, then they would be able to just get a default judgment for the money. And that's not saying they can get the money or will get that default judgment, but that would be the next step. So that pretty much brings us up to date on what's going on at City Hall. Now let's go to the state capitol in Juneau, mm -hmm. where we're just a little over a month away from what is supposed to be the end of the legislative session. But Hard, that, hard word uh, supposed to be there. Yeah. So capitol what happens that May 17 is the scheduled uh -huh. end, but as you know, that doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean much. You know, I actually got, I got my start covering Juneau because of special sessions. So at, at the beginning, when I first had kind of moved into politics, that was me going to cover Palin um, in multiple special sessions down in Juneau. So they could, they have, and those go back before Palin to Frank Murkowski. And oh, man, those, those special sessions went on all summer. So there's no magic about May There 17. is no magic. We, you'll see the workload increase. People will be more productive the closer we get to the end. Um, it's, know, like it's like finals week. It's like week, finals week, yeah. You can push finals off. Yeah, exactly. You don't get ready for them. So that's where we are in Juneau. They did, just today I noticed the House of Representatives, the Alaska House, has taken up an actual budget bill, and they're discussing it. And a couple of the things in that bill are interesting. The House seems to want to really preserve as much of the dividend, the PFD, as possible. The governor asked for, I think, 3500 The House bill uh, is calling for $2,700 and also a $175 million one-time public school allocation. And that all of that, plus all the other things in the budget, will require taking some money out of the constitutional budget reserve. Now, here's something that I just found out, that the Senate bill on the PFD, their opening gambit is only a $1,300 hmm. dividend, but more money, a permanent $1,000 increase to the school funding formula. So House says more money to individuals, a one-time special boost to schools. The Senate says less money for the dividend, uh, more money permanently for schools, but as a new person here, I've already learned, and you can explain more, <laughs> that dividend is like the thing people really pay attention to it inside really and outside of government. Absolutely. How much and people's philosophy on government and just life in general is really wrapped up in what you think should be the price for the dividend. I'm trying to be very careful here because it's such a sticky area. But, you know, it's the, the whole thing even of – using the word you're owed or using, you know, 
ownership state and all, all that stuff is just ripe with controversy. Because a lot of people feel like this is their money and yeah. the state – just give me what is my money. It's right. not your decision how much I should get. There's a formula. And use the formula. Use the formula, which uh -huh. the governor says is $3,500 this uh -huh. year. But neither his House nor the Senate want to figure out a plan that would give that much. No. So that's a pretty wide difference, 1000 2700 3500 Yeah. And I suspect our audience, both of the podcasts and of the – television news on the digital side will really care about that deeply. Oh, yeah. And then, so, you know, it's the whole thing of also what services do you think that the state should provide or is supposed to provide and to what extent? And is that supposed to be based on um, return, kind of a return on investments for it? And so it's just, um, it's a complicated matter. I can't imagine, though, that that 3500 is going to happen. Or that they'll figure it out by May 17th. No, uh -uh. But I think one of the things about the school issue is everyone seems to agree that there's not enough money for the schools. Right. But again, how you get more money to the schools, and there's how much, no agreement on this. Oh, no. And how much it should be. And it should it be one time. And should it be for, you know, should it be the BSA or budget, you know, or or a, a, a bonus for coming to work here? Or, you know, what should it be? They all, that's a big question. So there's... With just over 30 days left in the official session, <laughs> there's a lot of work there's still to do. There's a ton of work to do. Another contentious issue, there were hearings last week, is the governor's proposal on a parental, a parental bill of rights. Mm -hmm. Very emotional testimony. I've gone through some of the letters that people sent to the uh, committee that's considering it. And one of the things that really struck me was how many people – on one side of the issue are arguing, I'm the parent, I should have full say in mm -hmm. anything affecting my child. I have religious beliefs that are strongly held. You shouldn't touch sex education. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't touch pronouns. You, there's a lot of things that are not any of your business. Mm -hmm. And the other side argues, this is a, you know, these are public schools. These are kids sometimes from troubled backgrounds uh, who, who can't tell their parents. Who can't tell their parents. These issues can't be left totally to the parents. Otherwise, why have a public school? Mm -hmm. Parents can't make decisions about every single book that a child reads yeah. in school or every single subject that's taught. So that's the, the sort of back and forth that we're going through. And the hearings showed both sides, I think, quite dramatically. Yeah. It's interesting. I even was reading Sean McGuire's article about um, Bree's Law. And uh, Cindy Moore, who's Bree's mother, had had a quote in there that said, um, I, and I'm, gonna, I'm butchering it and I'm just paraphrasing here, but it's um, essentially like you can't have parents have 100% control and zero have, children have zero. So it's, but that's a family thing of like, what does the family think about who's in charge and what degree? I mean, that's just a, that's a hard nut to crack. And this is also the parental bill is also tied up in the transgender issue, mm -hmm. which has become such a lightning rod, fights all over the country. And so the part of the proposal in the governor's bill is that you have to use the locker room or the bathroom facility of the sex that you were born as, no matter what you've done since then, and that would include staff, teachers, mm -hmm. and students. And 
We have tried and still have not had success determine how many actual complaints there have been just in the Anchorage school system over this. Like, are there issues where people are having difficulties in locker rooms or bathroom facilities? It's very hard to get statistics. Yeah. One thing that we saw last week uh, was that a private group that helps guide policy on athletics was considering a similar uh, resolution about who participates in athletics and could only come up with one mm -hmm. case in the last decade where a transgender student had competed in high school sports. So these are not common things in this state, but and they are certainly a high interest and controversy. Yeah. And his soundbite from ASAA, it was, yes, we know it was a low number. It was one. But this is trying to get in front of a situation before it's charged with emotions, essentially. So, so get it in front of the situation. That's how they viewed it. Right. And look, there's a lot of um, emotion on all sides on this. And it would be, one doesn't have to look too far to see some high-profile examples, for instance, the University of Pennsylvania swimmer mm -hmm. who seemed to have uh, a transgender uh, individual who had transitioned from male to female who had an incredible advantage over teammates and competitors to the point where most of her own team complained that it wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. But that's one high-profile example. There are scores of other examples where people don't complain and don't notice because it's not that high-profile and it's not that dramatic a difference. They're not taking a position from some other person. They're not winning state championships or national championships. But those examples where it has happened cause a lot of, a lot of anger and controversy and Alaska's right in the middle of that. All right, right we just joined that one. <laughs> and that's yeah. a bill where, um, you know, that's in Jamie Allard's committee, and I think she has probably favored the governor's position, mm -hmm. but it does not seem as if that's a bill that can pass the state Senate mm -mm. right now. So I have a question then, uh, since I, I haven't gone through the letters, when you were going through the letters, which side do they majority lean towards? Because I know in the in the public testimony for a while, people were saying um, that there weren't enough conservative voices. And so there was kind of a rally to get more conservative voices there. Did you find that to be the same with the letters? Most of the letters were from the conservative side of the they were. argument. Oh, and most of them, they either cited religious beliefs or family rights. I'm the parent. Schools shouldn't get involved in these kinds of issues. You have no right to tell my child anything about sex or or much about sex or transgender issues. And in terms of the pronoun issue, of course, it's you have to tell me because I'm the I'm parent. I'm the parent. Uh -huh. That's one thing I'm doing some reporting on now is, is the, um, you know, what is sex ed? What does it look like based on your grade? Because the governor's bill says you're not going to learn about sex ed before fourth grade. So what does it look like now? You just kind of a, a fact check of what what is being talked about and what's and the the early reporting I've shown says they don't even call it sex ed at those ages. 
that in the you know the fourth and third and fifth grade it's more about hygiene like where how is the body changing should you start wearing deodorants that kind of thing i think one of the things that we as an investigative unit are committed to is trying to dig through the rhetoric and get actual numbers out and we continue to work on that and it's not always the easiest thing but we're going to keep working on it so that's where we are <laughs> on anchorage on alaska and Albania, the triple A <laughs> of political coverage. <laughs> now we're going back to one of those A's. We're going back to Anchorage now. Joining us for the first time ever on the political pipeline is our reporter who's been covering a lot of city, excuse me, municipal uh, issues, municipal elections, Joe Kadat. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it feels good to be on the podcast for the first time. You will never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I appreciate that. So let's take a look at we're a couple of weeks past the election, and we still don't have certified results. I looked it up today. The certification is due for next week, April 25th. But we're pretty sure we know what the results are because, although they technically are still accepting uh, mail-in ballots from overseas, I did a little bit of research and I found out that the last day for which they posted new ballots coming in was April 12, and they only had seven ballots come in on April 12. Since Election Day, they've had 2,000, so a significant number, but it's quite clear that there's just a handful of stragglers, if any, more ballots to come in. So the results we know now are almost surely the final results. And Joe, tell me what do those results say about how the forces who supported Mayor Bronson did versus those who oppose Mayor Bronson? There were at least two candidates who were endorsed by the current sitting mayor, Dave Bronson. Uh, those were uh, Scott Myers, who was the assembly candidate for Eagle River. He was running against uh, Jim Arlington. Jim Arlington um, had come out a couple times on local radio saying, uh, driving in the point that he is nonpartisan for this race, that he is nonpartisan, that was very important for him. Um, and uh, there were a lot of people in the community who I think might have unofficially recognized Jim Arlington as uh, sort of the liberal Democrat running. Um, but regardless of that, Scott Myers appears to be the person who's going to clearly uh, be the winner in Eagle River in that assembly race. Scott Myers, he's a first-time candidate, and he was kind of uh, hand-picked um, by a lot of different people to run. Um, he has a huge support of the Eagle River area, but it's my understanding that that, that area um, in the recent past has regularly voted Republican. When we look at overall the elections, um, in the Anchorage area, in all the all seven seats that were up, um, usually a lot of areas will vote Democrat or liberal, even though these positions are nonpartisan. It's my understanding that Rachel Reese uh, was endorsed by the mayor. It's possible I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure she told me that in in person the night of the election. And Rachel Reese uh, is a uh, proud conservative. She's a combat veteran. She was a medevac pilot and she was running against uh, Mikel Insulaco and Zach Johnson. And Zach Johnson, um, I think, is probably 
going to edge her out if these preliminary results are accurate and they kind of stick to the results that we're looking at now. So, I mean, this looks like it's a almost a uh, referendum, if you will. Um, I don't know if it would be so far to say a referendum against the mayor, but if you look at who was elected, every single person who was elected wasn't necessarily the person who was the Republican or the or the conservative in the race. Scott Myers being the only person that Dave Bronson endorsed, who's probably going to win all of these other uh, Republican or conservative candidates um, look like they're, they're going to lose to who the public identifies as the more liberal or Democrat um, candidate. The other thing that I noticed and that others have noticed is not only did, uh, other than Scott Myers, the candidates who, uh, would be most associated with opposing the mayor. Not only did they win, but they won by pretty substantial amounts. Like Chris Constant got over 60% of the vote. These races were by and large, not close. Yeah. I would say that I know we're talking about assembly candidates, um, kind of like the other, um, example of the strong conservative who got in would be on the school board, though. I think Dave Donnelly is is squarely going to win that school board seat against Irene Bull. But when we talk about the assembly, though, yeah, it seems like all of these um, people who at least the public has identified as the Democrat or the more liberal choice um, have just resoundingly won. And I'm not sure if that's because voters almost unofficially are voting their disapproval to the mayor. Um, but I know that I hear from a lot of folks locally that um, Chugiak Eagle River is almost a completely different place. And when you go there, um, that's clearly Scott Myers uh, district, if you will, or his, um, his district seat on the assembly. And he's, he's squarely the, Dave Bronson choice, how much Scott Myers will have, how much weight Scott Myers will have in the assembly as unofficially the only conservative Republican and maybe the only assembly member who at least on paper is going to be on the assembly who was endorsed by the mayor. It'll be of interesting. This, of this round of elections, there are a couple others who sometimes support the mayor, but they, they didn't have to run for re-election. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out with Scott Myers being, I guess, the only newcomer who's in the mayor's corner, I guess, at least on paper. The other thing that I know I've heard and I think you've heard is some criticism of the Republican Party overall for not doing more to help the candidates who are leaning Republican. Well, one of the questions I asked the night of the election, I was actually where Dave Donnelly was, and that was considered some kind of unofficial watch party for the Republican uh, local Republican Party. And uh, off camera, it was kind of explained to me that at one time there was kind of a central Republican headquarters for these elections where all of the Republicans would get together in one place. And it was somewhat of a big deal. And for whatever reason, these candidates at least almost seemed like on election night, at least operating in a silo. And I don't necessarily know if that's lack of backing of the established Republican Party in Alaska or if that's just kind of what time has done 
um, in um, some of these candidates. Kind of, a lot of these candidates were first-time candidates, and they kind of seemed to me, at least in talking with them, looking at their web pages, it kind of seemed to me like they were um, kind of running in a silo, if you will. And the tone I got the night of the election and the tone I got through texting and talking with some of these candidates over the phone um, was kind of like, it was almost like people were trying to say to me that they knew they were or weren't going to win without even saying it to me. It's hard to describe that, but I don't think these results are surprising to a lot of people. But overall, if you look at the big picture of the results, I think it might have been a little surprising to um, the conservatives and the Republicans in the city who thought maybe they would have at least got one or two more of their people on the assembly. I think one in particular, um, a, a lot of people were talking about, like maybe they weren't necessarily so surprised that she lost, more so that they were surprised um, that she didn't get way more votes. Like when they started seeing the original votes and they saw how low the votes were, that's more so where people were like, a lot of this wasn't really surprising to people. However, a couple of the individual candidates who who got a lot less votes than their people were um, kind of anticipating, that's more so where I saw maybe there was more confidence there than what actually happened. Some of these candidates just didn't do as well. A little bit of underperformance on the conservative Republican side, for sure. And we'll see what kind of regrouping the party does, or if not the party, the conservative activists do, because these were not good elections for them. And maybe it you may have touched on something that's maybe as, as important and that is when you run a lot of first-time candidates who aren't well-known, that's a strike against you right away because they don't have the experience knowing how to run a campaign. They may not raise the money. Their names are not uh, widely known to the community. And so they're starting from behind. As far as I understand, um, there are two, I guess, unofficially would be the, the Democrat or liberal candidate, maybe they don't individually identify as completely that way, but I guess the general perception as being definitely against who they were running against, at least um, to be fair. But I think two um, who were political newcomers on that side of the spectrum who are probably most likely going to be elected would be Zach Johnson, who's the District 6 seat K candidate. I'm pretty sure he's a first-time candidate and also um karen baranga i'm pretty sure she's a retired i don't well i think she's a former public school teacher long time public school teacher in the anchorage area um and i think she's a first-time candidate as well but i definitely see what you're saying when you maybe um add the fact there's a lot of first-time candidates and then you also add the fact that maybe some of these candidates, maybe they have a lot of endorsements on their webpage. Maybe they have a lot of endorsements on paper. The general feel that I got from this election, though, is a lot of these folks were, I don't know how to describe it other than saying that it kind of seemed like maybe they were operating in some kind of silo. Okay. Let's move on now to the propositions, all of which passed pretty easily except for one. Which proposition failed, and what was that one about? So the proposition that failed, Proposition 13, amending the Anchorage Municipal Charter regarding filling vacancies on the Assembly 
and in the office of the mayor and to exclude the cost for special elections for offices from the tax increase limitation or tax cap. Now, a lot of these propositions that passed, or I guess all of the propositions that passed besides this one, um, well, for one, they are a lot shorter in verbiage. This proposition printed on paper is almost three pages long. Maybe people just didn't want to read through it. And, I, you know, it, it's also of note that it's the, as far as I understand, it's the only proposition um, that has the word mayor on it. That's interesting. I, I can't read into it any more than that. But if you look at, you know, one of the people the mayor endorsed is most likely going to get elected. And then you have kind of an overwhelming swell of an unofficial um, left uh, Anchorage can or Anchorage Assembly candidates getting elected, and then you see this proposition with the word mayor on it. That is the only one that doesn't pass. But honestly, looking at this proposition, um, it's long. It's long. But what it would have done, and what will not change now, my understanding is that we will continue with a system where the assembly chair would be the acting mayor if a mayor has to leave office early until the next scheduled election. This would have made a special election more easy, but also that would have come with an extra cost. And people said, nope. Thank you, Joe, for joining us for the first time, not the last time. Thank you, listeners, for listening to Alaska's Political Pipeline. We ask you, as always, to follow us, like us, share our podcast, because we want to keep doing these. And the best way is if... You listen, and you get more people to listen, and we get more people to listen. Right, Joe? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. All right.